Food matters. What things we eat, how we prepare our food and who we eat with are central to both individual and cultural identity. Making choices about what to eat can reflect deeply held individual values. While some religions have specific rules about what substances can be eaten and how food must be prepared, waves of immigrants have brought culinary diversity to Australia. We are no longer a country where meat and two veg are the staple dinner. However, meat has remained a favourite. Australia does have one of the highest per capita meat consumption rates in the world. Eating meat raises various ethical questions, from animal welfare to environmental impact. Today we're going to focus on animal welfare and the importance to Australian consumers of a good life and a good death for animals served as meat. Here to help us think about these issues today is Professor Rachel Ankeny. Rachel's a professor in the School of Humanities at the University of Adelaide. She's an interdisciplinary scholar whose areas of expertise cross several fields, including history and philosophy of science, bioethics and science policy, food studies. In late 2022, she visited CAVE and took part in our public panel on whether we should all become vegans. Welcome, Rachel. Thanks, Wendy. Pleasure to be here. Rachel, you recently published with colleagues an article outlining a study of the values of Australian meat consumers related to sheep and cattle welfare. What can you tell us about your findings? So we've done a a series of um, studies looking at consumer values, but the most recent one really focused on beef cattle welfare and in particular um, around what makes a good life and a good death according to meat consumers. So this is um, part of Dr. Emily Buttle's thesis, and so it was a collaborative project um, on the Food Values Research Group. We used qualitative techniques, and in part what we were interested in was trying to think about how people understood animal welfare. But to do so, we wanted to get away from the scientific definitions and much more focus on their ideas of what makes something a good life and a good death. And among other things, what we found was often participants had very romanticized ideas about farming and often also had very definite opinions about what counts as natural behaviors. And so a lot of this is reinforced by what we see in the TV, what we see in labeling and so on. And people tended to sort of project notions either of what they wanted for themselves or what they thought agriculture should be onto their responses. We don't want to stress really that this is because they're silly or stupid or uninformed. I think with all of our work, we try to take quite seriously what people think, right? And I think here, retailing is as responsible for what they think as people's own understandings, right? And to a certain extent, then, there was a strong connection between what animals naturally would do and what they thought was normal, and that we are really interested in particular in um, maximizing what is natural. I was really interested in in some of the comments from participants that you reported about envisaging or imagining or attributing a relationship of intimacy and care between farmers and their animals but you also note that 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 that's possibly you know not the case for for a lot of the the meat that's eaten what did you make of that that view of the farmer sort of caring for individual animals almost i think um we see this throughout a lot of our research that there's a vision of a certain kind of farmer And not only do they happen to have all sorts of attributes, they tend to be white, they tend to be male, they tend to be heterosexual, they wear an akubra, and there's all this sort of stylized, kind of romanticized versions. A lot of farmers are like that, lots of farmers aren't. Um, And so I do think they think they often 
describe farms that are smaller scale family owned as the default. And particularly when you talk to them about what they think good care is, that's what they're going to come back to. At other times, we see it not just in our research, but more broadly, when asked about who do they trust, they trust farmers, but they don't trust the agricultural industry. So they make a distinction between big farms and small farms, between Australian-owned and non-Australian-owned, and also between sort of places where there are direct contact, um, perhaps, with farmers or those who are working with them and the animals from bigger industrialized farms. That being said, I think, you know, this vision of thinking that, you know, family farms care for them animals goes along with that kind of rhetoric about um, their vision normatively about what a farm should be and what it should be like. And so too, I mean, there's, a, there's another study that sort of goes along with this. When we talk to farmers, they tended to talk about the ways in which they care for their animals, in part because they do have close relationships, even if they will end up being part of the production system and being killed at the end, there's no reason, in fact, every reason, um, moral, practical, economic, and otherwise, to treat their animals well. Shortcutting is not going to lead to a good outcome. It leads to an ill animal. It leads to um, negative outcomes more broadly. So I think participants really stress this kind of alignment, but of course they are envisioning a particular sort of farm that's much less industrialized. Yeah, and that, and as you say, it's it's pushed by the advertisements for meat in the retail industry, but also politicians, you know, invoke the idea of the family farm and the you know the uh, the Aussie bat battler farmer. It's it's a very strong trope, I think, through quite a number of areas of life. But I mean, I do think that you know there are a lot of family farms. I mean, when we look, actually, the data isn't fantastic in lots of regards, but Australia tends to have still a good percentage of farms where depending on which um, kind of farming we're talking about, where families are involved and multi-generational families are involved and so on. So it's not completely offbeat kind of idea, but I think it does raise into question kind of how much they're alighting differences in practices because of assumptions about what those practices are. Yeah, I have a surprising connection with the meat industry, given that I'm a vegan now and was vegetarian, but I worked on a cattle station as a Jillaroo um, in 1975. And I also worked as a medical officer in a, at a meatworks in, later in my career. So I've sort of seen it from all sides, but certainly that was a family farm I worked on. I mean, it was huge, it was 2,000 square, 2, square miles. I don't, I don't know how many hectares or acres that was, but they did care for the animals enormously. The whole, the whole mm. project was to try, you know, and, and if there was not enough feed, be, very worried about moving them to better paddocks and and it hadn't rained and so on so that's sort of one area in the research is romanticized it's got some some grounding in reality but perhaps perhaps there's some other another reality there as well that people don't think about and I also thought you you brought out quite nicely in the research a, a perhaps more deliberate blind spot to do with the reluctance of people to think about the animal's how the animals they eat are killed, because you were talking about a good life and a good death. And you referred to this as the meat paradox. What do, you, what do you mean by that? And what role does it play in people's attitudes towards eating meat? Sure. So the meat paradox is something, it's not our term uniquely, but it's something that keeps coming up in our research. Um, and it has to do with the whole idea that people love to talk about what they eat. And in Australia in particular, they really, really like their meat. But the other side of it, however, is that most consumers don't want to think about slaughter. And even though they do eat meat, they don't want to think about this part of the, of the practice. 
And so psychologists would call it a form of affected ignorance. It's not that they don't know that they're slaughtered, but that they want to kind of set that aside and not dwell on it. And in particular, it's a form of cognitive dissonance, which comes from this tension uh, of knowing that the consumption behavior harms animals, results in their deaths, but that they nonetheless enjoy uh, eating meat or even see meat as a necessary part of their diet. Um, and we found this again and again in our research, um, including with some psychologist colleagues. This is a very, very common thing. How do people deal with it? Well, like all cognitive dissonance, you can only deal with it if you recognize it. So that's step one. And then the choices become either you reject meat consumption altogether, which some people do, or in some sense, they find a way to rationalize it or work around it in order to bring their things in alignment. And so in particular, meat eaters tend to think in terms of broader categories to rationalize or contextualize might be more appropriate their meat eating. So not everyone thinks all these things, but many people think about it as being natural, that you know it's just what humans do, that it's normal, and in particular, there's longstanding traditions, that it's nice, they enjoy eating meat, and so this is just part of the process. Less frequently that it's necessary so that you can't get kind of those, those calories anywhere else and particularly protein. The last we hear a lot, and we've done some research in families from people with children who say it's gonna be difficult to get enough protein in my kids if we don't eat meat. But I think we also hear a connection to this being part of Australian life, and in particular, how important it is for Australian farmers that we maintain meat eating. And at the same time, we're starting to hear people say, well, because of the environmental concerns, uh, they want to start to reduce their meat eating. And that's interesting because it isn't necessarily the animal welfare concerns, but it's more about these sort of broader issues that are pushing people to perhaps have better quality, better uh, humane certification kinds of things, but less quantity. That seems to be sort of the latest version of a solution that a lot of people are engaging in. Yes, I think you're right there that it the environmental argument seems to have more traction than the mm. than the animal welfare argument, which I kind of find interesting. Um, but I guess, you know, with all the, the fires and floods and stuff we've had in the last few years, it's that's more front and mind of people's minds. I think it feels more um, real and more pressing at the moment. Animal welfare, I think a lot of people deal with that by trying to make sure what they buy is higher welfare, that it's humane. Um, that slaughter conditions are as good as they can be, rejecting manufacturers that are associated with live export. You know, they do different things to sort of say, well, I'm at least trying to navigate that. So they don't necessarily object to the killing of animals for this purpose, but they want, and this goes back to the good life part, they want them to have appropriate conditions on the way to that outcome. So those people aren't necessarily going to find eating meat problematic. But once you mix in uh, climate change considerations, that's where we're seeing a lot of people wanting to know a lot more about conditions of production, uh, contribution to climate change, and some of these broader issues. Yeah, that's really interesting. I, yeah, I, obviously, I've put my cards on the table. You know, I think yeah. I think the less meat that's eaten, the better. But you know, I see, I would see that as you know something that can be done in a phased manner with people reducing their meat and ensuring that ensuring that the you know, the price in the supermarket reflects the environmental cost of producing that meat and re and then helping, forcing, showing my hand too much here, but prompting that people to question instead of just the unquestioning, putting things in your supermarket basket, but actually thinking about it. I mean, I think more generally, it's a little bit off what we plan to talk about, but I think more generally, the problem here is 
metrics and understanding how you know. So I think sustainability is probably the most important attribute that a lot of people are looking for. And this has been a change over the last 10 years or so. The problem is it, it's not easy. There's not an RSPCA certification to look for. There's not, and quantifying it in any meaningful way, both when you put it in your basket at the trolley or buy it from the farm gate or whatever, but also how's my household going to contribute to a bigger picture? Very difficult to do. Everybody wants to do it including farmers, producers. I just came from a big ag conference the last few days, but it's not really clear how consumers and community can be informed in such a way that's actually credible. You've talked about the cognitive dissonance, people not wanting to think about how the animals are killed. Do you think it, it's also cognitive dissonance or just you know not, not having the information at their fingertips that makes people not associate their meat with feedlots um, and not, not associate their meat with agribusinesses and not associate and not realise, in fact, that, that all slaughtered animals, you know, have to bleed out and that we don't eat meat that's full of blood. Are those cognitive dissonances that we should, you know, leave people with or should we try and, as part of the information, make that more clear to people that, you know, this beef was spent eight weeks in a feedlot? So I think each of those has a slightly different um, genesis. So for example, their visions of cows dancing in green pastures and whatever else um, come in part from, as I said, advertising, retailing, um, TV shows about uh, boutique farms. There's quite a lot. It also comes from this distancing ourselves from practices in other places. So, oh, yes, in America they do that, but here we do things differently. That being said, most animals aren't on feedlots for all their lives. So, that is sort of different here than it is in other places. And I think. With regard to that, it, it probably is important in the bigger scheme that people realize that there are these different stages that animals go through, but it's probably not the most important or most meaningful thing that's going to change their views. They're going to be thinking still about, well, if they're treated well, and they'll have a definition of what that means, even when at the end they're you know, in a feedlot or being transported. So we looked at that and transport is a real delicate issue for a lot of consumers. I think transport is, is very very much of concern to a lot of people because we actually see it a lot in Australia um, just because of the way our country's laid out. Cities are often proximate. Trucks go through the middle of Melbourne, right? So we found in that part of the study that um, people were deeply concerned about transport having seen it you know, on the road next to them when they were stuck in traffic, right? So I think there's different stages. There's a realization that there are these different stages. What actually happens at the end I think is very interesting because there's this deep distinction they draw, for example, between halal and so-called normal slaughter or proper slaughter. But the truth be known, the practices in this country are the same. And regulatory authorities, there are limits. You have to actually stun before death. Um, that is not the case in all places. There are some exemptions for religious understandings. But what's happened here is there's been very multicultural collaboration between um, halal butchers, um, imams, uh, the regulatory authorities, the beef industry, and so on, to come up with a standard that works for everyone. And that standard does involve stunning. So it isn't the case that it's that different. Kosher is a different, different matter. There isn't much kosher meat, to be frank. So here we have people making some sort of distinction. And I think there um, you can blame in part the internet because there is a lot on halal practices in other countries where stunning is not required. But more to the point, people are open to that because there's a lot of racism surrounding um, Muslims in this country and their practices and a lot of fear. It's been heavily politicized and weaponized in this country. 
And so this is one domain where people can say, we don't want that. You know, our Australian practices are completely different. Finally, I think it's just, it's the narrowness of people's understandings that religions actually are different than one another. And, you know, something like Islam, there's no one set of rules. It, it's locally interpreted um, as opposed to lots of forms of Christianity where there's, you know, the head of the church somewhere. And people just don't realize that Islam in one place is in Islam in another place. I was, I was really interested in, in or fascinated really and horrified how much they're much othering though you described it as othering you know, um there was of of halal practices I, I was quite taken aback at it because um when I was medical officer in this meatworks they had a they had a, a line for the for the sheep that, that was oriented in the right way it was facing Mecca but the, the, the animals died an identical death to the ones that weren't facing Mecca so yeah there was nothing there's no difference in it at all yes it does feed into fairly unpleasant stereotyping of of, of you know sort of animal cruelty and barbarism but they don't bring up animal cruelty or that in the in the research report in the paper they didn't bring up cruelty in Australia, particularly, do they other than halal? Was, you know, we don't, we're not cruel here. No, and I think, I mean, for the most part, they think the norm is attention to welfare, and and you know, on average, they may be right. A lot of the things that we've seen in the domain of animal cruelty have been abysmal, but they've been exposés. They tend to be rogue operators, sometimes within businesses that need to be doing a better job about who they hire and patrolling what their workers do. But they somehow believe that a lot of what goes on offshore is necessarily bad and abusive, but what's Australian is fine. And again, this is sort of a simple, I mean, I, th I think we see it in all sorts of domains and not just this domain. You just, you need to at some point give over expertise and trust because you can't look into absolutely everything. So, you know, you need to assume that there's fair labor practices, even if you are a vegetarian, unless you're going to grow everything yourself, you know. You need to make assumptions about carbon footprint and transport. You might be able to look some things up, but a lot of it isn't very easy to actually investigate. So short of growing all our own food, which most people can't do for all sorts of reasons, you give over some of that trust. And in all our studies, we see quite a lot of trust in farmers themselves, as I said, when defined a certain way, so family farmers, but also in regulatory authorities that they are looking over the shoulder. And I think in that regard, live export has brought this to people's attention that there's what goes on here and then there's live export, but that what goes on here is quite tightly bounded. In some way, that's why, you know, the, the focus has turned for many people onto live export, even if they are meat eaters. Yeah, I think that's right. The live export exposés have been pretty horrific and, and people see what happens in a, just in a truck going through Melbourne or Adelaide or Sydney and imagining that kind of multiplied a thousand times on a boat out and 42 degree heat in the middle of the sea. Just Yeah. And even farmers, you know, speak to us about their moral dilemmas because they can't control the whole value chain, right? There's a limit. So they can try to find better or worse transport options. And in indeed, there's lots of science going on about stress in animals, how to minimize it, other things like that. But they can't control every piece of the puzzle along the way. And, and they worry about that, right? Um, and as I said, transport more generally is something that people really worry about, both farmers and uh, consumers or even community who don't eat meat. Rachel, as, as a food ethicist, what do you see as your role in debates about animal welfare and the ethics of eating meat? I try to take, I mean, and, and you might well think that this is impossible, but I do try and take a middle road. I'm an ethicist. I'm trained as a philosopher, but I'm also someone who's very interested in what you might call the social science side of this which is seeing what people think. I'm more interested in digging down to the values, the associations, 
the understandings that people have and using this to shed light on even deeper issues perhaps than what people eat rather than telling them what they should do. So I don't really, I, I'm not strictly descriptive. I mean, we do actually analyze, you know, we're not just telling a story, we analyze. And I think halal is a good example of something more generally about food being used to convey xenophobia and racism. It's a longstanding issue. Another one, colleagues of mine at Melbourne, if you point, if you pick up a newspaper, whatever, and look at food inspections, lots of the time they're of Asian restaurants and they'll be portrayed in a certain sort of way as contrasted to other types of restaurants. And that goes back a really, really long way. And so I think it's interesting to look at the values and the ethics that people say that they have. We usually use values because it's a little less complicated or loaded than ethics associated with their food choices, which is purchasing, consumption, disposal. You know, there's a whole range of points in the process you can look at as a way to understand more generally what people are thinking about, what they value, the dilemmas that they're facing. And in turn, then I see my role as bringing that to light to help all sorts of actors involved in thinking harder about whether they're meeting people's needs and values, whether it's a system that is working uh, in all senses. I don't just think you can look at the economics that people, you know, continue to buy things, even when people aren't buying for whatever reason, they still have values that are aligned or malaligned with the current system. So a lot of what we do is then try to inform policy try to inform the ways in which farmers, animal welfare scientists in this case, um, and even government engages with people and talks about norms and standards and what is in the system and what's excluded from the system. And so I very much see my role and the Food Values Research Group that I look after at Adelaide much more is about those kinds of norms and values than establishing a right code of conduct. And I think that aligns with, you know, some of the more complex things that are emerging, even at an international level, about the fact that it isn't easy to figure out what a balanced diet is. Um, there are all sorts of trade-offs, particularly once we bring in labor, sustainability, health, uh, animal welfare, price, convenience, all the very real practical things. People are always going to be engaging in a complex calculus to make decisions about what they buy, what they eat, what they feed their families. In which case, transparency and clarity, I think, is very, very important, but understanding where people are starting in order to then prompt that kind of conversation. I, I liked the way you answered that question because you, you'd be on a hiding to nothing, really, if you went around telling people they shouldn't be eating meat or shouldn't be doing this or that or the next thing. But I think pointing out the complexity, and it is, it's really, really difficult, you know, you know what counts as ethical eating and, and then how on earth do you achieve it? And there's so many gaps in the knowledge and in the, in the information that's available. And you could spend your whole life, you know, unless you grow it yourself, which isn't, isn't sustainable for most of us. Um, it's probably 40 degrees here in Adelaide today. And, you know, even growing something in your backyard with rainwater, there's real limits. And I, you know, I don't necessarily think that's the best approach either. So I think, I mean, we had a previous study which looked expressly at people's food ethics, as we called it, but really got them to tell us why they eat what they eat, you know, and so on. And there were all sorts of interesting solutions. We had a woman, young woman who sort of shocked everyone around her when asked what she had had for lunch. She said that she had um, venison on a salad, whatever. So oh, that sounds really nice. And we were talking about local food and she said, and it was local. And we're like, well, how do you know? Was it labeled? Whatever. She said, no, because I shot the deer myself. So she will only eat meat and animals and more generally that she herself has captured, killed, and so on, because she thinks that that is ethical 
and particularly we get a fair number of people where these are things that are already access to a number, they're feral, they're otherwise problematic. And in fact, we see people who are otherwise vegetarians who are kangatarians or, you know, are willing to eat things that are feral. So you can see that the, the line there is slightly different, but they're wild as well. So you don't have the same concerns about farmed animals, you know, and then we had rabid meat eaters, a young man, I remember very clearly who in a focus group, almost got everyone on board. You know, the fact that he was no longer um, eating at Hungry Jack's because they had halal meat and he was opposed to halal meat because of live export. Okay, well, you know, kind of a forward thinking kind of 18 year old. I was really surprised. And as it came out, it really had to do with racist views on, on Muslim people and problems he had with his neighbors and whatever. Uh, live export was sort of the, the, the veil he was using to present it to the bigger group. So I think the alignments here sometimes are very unexpected. People's reasons are sometimes very unexpected. And that it's really important to kind of hear the diversity of the voices when we're trying to think about the right approach going forward. So I think trying to get people to eat more sustainable might be something almost everyone can agree on. But what that means and how it should be done is going to be a morale. Exactly. Right? Particularly with metrics. Metrics to date that are in any way accurate are really lacking in this domain. Um, and some people are going to say, and also there's the triple bottom line point, which is sustainable for the environment, sustainable for rural communities, sustainable economically. There's all sorts of different senses in which things can be sustainable. And people are sometimes talking at cross purposes. They might mean one or two of those and not all of them. Or even if they mean all of them, the way they weigh up, the importance may differ. So I think we have a lot of work to do in that kind of domain. Is that on the agenda for your food, food values group? Yeah, I mean, interestingly, again, you might think this is sort of coming at it a funny way, but one of the latest projects that we have is what's called a training center that's been funded through the Australian Research Council collaboratively with scientists who are plant biologists working on novel crops, right? And in particular, using genetic modification to look at novel crops. But in the past and in this project, ICGM is a way to get people to think about their values, their assumptions, their understandings. So traditionally, you know, there's been a portion of the population that's quite opposed to GM. We don't have a lot of GM products on the market currently. But for me, the question now is the reality of climate change, plus the fact that a lot of these crops that are being developed are designed to be more resilient, more um, adapted to the Australian climate and so on. Is that going to change people's minds about whether GM is something that's worth pursuing, whether they're willing to uh, eat the crop, whether farmers are willing to grow it? Um, so I think that's a really interesting opportunity to probe, again, this place of conflict between people's previous values and the way in which the world is, is unfolding around us. Yeah, well, that sounds really interesting and, of course, relevant to the, the work that the centre I'm involved with, synthetic biology, where the synthetic food stuffs are allegedly just around the corner. Look, thanks, Rachel. That's all we've got time for. If you'd like to read Rachel's paper, there are links in the show notes. Thanks for your time. This podcast has been a presentation of the Macquarie University Centre for Agency Values and Ethics. And I'm your host, Distinguished Professor Wendy Rogers. This is a Piccolo podcast production.